Francine Buchanan and her husband were overwhelmed as new parents. This is because their son, Cristiano, now a bubbly and social eight-year-old who attends school and camp, was born extremely premature. He was hooked up to several monitors and machines constantly for the first years of his life. The experience led Francine to become involved as a patient advisor at Sick Kids and to pursue studies in health services research. Today, I'm talking to Francine about her experiences as a caregiver and as a patient advisor. We also talk about an article she's written for CMAJ. It's part of a special journal issue that's devoted to patient involvement in healthcare, in research, and at CMAJ itself. I'm also chatting with Victoria Segel, Lead of Patient Involvement at CMAJ, to discuss how CMAJ is starting to integrate patient voices in journal governance and content. But first, my conversation with Francine, right after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Audi Canada. The Canadian Medical Association has partnered with Audi Canada to offer CMA members preferred incentive on select vehicle models. Purchase any new qualifying Audi model and receive an additional cash incentive based on the purchase type. Details of the incentive program can be found at audiprofessional.ca. Explore the full line of vehicles available to suit your lifestyle. The Audi driving experience is like no other. To shingles, age isn't just a number. Do you have patients 50 or older? They're at higher risk of getting shingles. Don't wait. Talk about Shingrix with your patients over 50 today. Shingrix is indicated for the prevention of herpes zoster, H. Z. or shingles in adults 50 years of age or older. Consult a product monograph at gsk.ca slash shingrix slash pm for contraindications, warnings, and precautions, adverse reactions, interactions, dosing, and administration information. To request a product monograph or to report an adverse event, please call 1-800-387-7374. Learn more at thinkshingrix.ca. Hi, Francine. Hi there. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. So first, tell me a little bit about your son, Cristiano. So Cristiano um, is an amazing little eight-year-old boy. Um, he was born quite premature, so he's a 26-weeker. And immediately upon birth, um, he had a number of birth defects. In essence, he had 13 surgeries and um, a lot of other procedures in the year and a half he spent in the ICU at the hospital. Um, that entire year and a half, I was by his bedside. And uh, that was my introduction to healthcare. And, you know, I was thrown right into the deep end. So he's eight now, and this has been quite a journey for you. I mean, and I was thinking when you said it was my introduction to, and I was thinking you were going to say being a parent and shuddering to think, how that must have been. Tell me how you felt for those first few days and weeks when your son was discharged after uh, being in hospital for so long. Yeah, so imagine a year and a half in the ICU. So always having a team of nurses and doctors at the push of a button. Um, and then we were discharged home and my son required a ventilator attached to a tracheostomy. He had a feeding pump um, and he required supplemental oxygen. So we had to monitor that as well. So anytime he was awake or asleep, he was attached to about three different machines at the same time. 
And all those machines we had to learn, uh, we had to figure out, and we had to manage uh, basically 24-7. So you can imagine that um, going from a doctor at a push of a button to it being my husband and I, you know, by ourselves, except for a nurse at night while we were trying to sleep, it was a little bit overwhelming, to say the least. I can imagine. And does your son need continuous ventilation or only intermittent? So he required continuous ventilation um, for the first four years of his life. Um, we eventually weaned him off and now he is um, only ventilated at night. Um, but for the first four years, he required supplemental oxygen and full ventilation to the point where, um, you know, even if he was disconnected for um, mere seconds, you could see the color of his lips start to change blue and he required, you know, immediate intervention. I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. So the prospect of bringing your son home for the first time, did you feel that it was something that the hospital gave you a lot of confidence in your ability to manage or did you feel absolutely overwhelmed and daunted? Well, it's an interesting feeling because for starters, you want to get home. You know, there's nothing more that you want than to especially since he was hospitalized right at birth there's nothing more that you want than to bond with your child to be in your house so you want to get out of that hospital you really really do but at the same time the prospect of leaving that hospital where there is that safety and security of having healthcare providers around you is a daunting prospect so you would hope that the hospital gave you all the support you needed but honestly you don't know what kind of support you need you've never lived outside the hospital um, with your child before so it's hard to think that you know did I get all the training did I listen during the training did I ask the right questions those are all questions you can't really ask because you don't know until after what that feeling is like or what the needs are that you require so it's a difficult question to answer because you just don't know. So what did you face like the first day that you were home? Um, a lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> so you can imagine, you know, we brought home with us the same beeping that you hear in a hospital room, right? So, you know, the beeping of a pulse oximeter, the beeping of a vent that's become disconnected, the beeping of a feeding pump demanding more food to be put into the bag. All those beeps came home with us, um, but we were now the ones in charge of addressing those beeps. So you're constantly on your toes. Did I hook up everything right? Did I do everything right? So, you know, those first few days were, you know, relieving because now you were home, but incredibly intimidating and incredibly nerve wracking. I don't think we left my son's room probably for the first, you know, two months except to leave to catch a nap in another room because it was difficult for him to move. You know, we had to move three pieces of equipment at the same time. Um, but it was also, you know, we didn't want to move anything because we didn't know what would happen if we moved it. Would we move it incorrectly? Would something go wrong? So, you know, we camped out in his room and we made the best of it. And we did all the things we needed to do to catch up, the bonding, the playing, the story times, those sorts of things. But, you know, it was still a stressful process. But again, you're buoyed on by this prospect of like, we're not in the hospital anymore. This is our house. 
did you feel that you had a direct line to the hospital, that they were open to you calling, needing help, asking any questions that you wanted? It's a difficult question to answer because we were always told, and you always hear this, you know, if you have any questions, feel free to call. We're here if you need us. But what's a silly question? When are we bothering them? We spent a year and a half in that ICU. We knew how busy they were. We knew that, you know, if we called the front desk, they had to find a nurse. They had to find a nurse who knew who we were, who knew Cristiano and knew his needs. And then you had to find them, but they were probably busy with someone else. So you don't want to bother people necessarily. And if it was a dire emergency, then we were already in the car to the hospital or we were already calling 911. So it's an interesting question because you don't know necessarily when it's urgent enough to call, not that urgent. Maybe you can figure it out. Maybe you should figure it out because this is your responsibility now. They sent us home. We should be okay. Those are all the messages you hear, which kind of are a little bit louder than the, you know, give us a call if you need anything. Absolutely. And now you've made this journey to being a leader in patient involvement advocacy space at SickKids. How did that journey happen? I don't know how it happened, actually. It was more just um, little steps here and there um, in terms of being a patient advisor on a number of different projects. Also learning about patient advisory um, through my graduate studies and seeing how I could involve patients in my studies. Um, And then some projects that evolved around, you know, how do we train for this? How do we include the patient perspective and how we teach patient engagement to other researchers? And then um, the opportunity arose for a job at SickKids to, to manage this and I applied and got the job. And now, you know, I find that I'm balancing a lot of different perspectives in terms of You know, how do we develop this space so that it includes the patient voice, the family voice, but also keeping the needs and minds of researchers. There's not unlimited budgets. There's not a lot of time to to do this work, uh, you know. So how do we make it efficient? How do we make it valuable for patients? And that's kind of the work that I'm doing now. And it's a really accumulation of different areas of my life coming together. Francine, do you remember the first time you were asked to participate as a patient perspective in a research study? How were you approached? I don't think I was ever approached the first time. (laughs) I think it was me just kind of, uh, you know, slightly asking the questions to slowly insert myself. So when people ask me what was my introduction to research, my introduction to research, I didn't start my graduate work till my son was discharged from hospital. And the reason that I started my graduate work was because I wanted to be involved in research. And what piqued my interest was really sitting in that room with my son and every once in a while being asked to complete a survey. Every once in a while asking if we would consent to being part of a research study. And it was in those moments that I would read the survey and, you know, it would ask me a question like, you know, how do you rank something from, you know, least impactful to more impactful or, you know, least important to more important, but the questions weren't asked that were relating to my life. Those questions weren't worded in a way that, you know, made sense to me, you know, how can I answer a question about, well, you know, what, 
is important to me when my entire life of my child has been situated in a hospital room? What does it mean to be asked a question while a patient in a hospital room? And it's those sorts of things that, you know, I would say to the researcher after, you know, just, you know, this question didn't kind of make sense to me. So the way that I answered it might not make sense to you. And then having those conversations afterwards is how I slowly got involved in advisory work. And then after that, it was really around um, going to researchers and saying, you know, this is a problem that I felt. How can we make this better? And it was really those conversations, I call them elevator talks, where we would be sitting in an elevator together and saying, hey, how are things going? And I would say, oh, this, you know, this is a real big problem. I was thinking about it. Is there a way we can do this as a solution? And that's really how I got involved in this live project. Um, And that's really how I got involved with um, developing solutions with that linkage to, you know, supporting patients going home from hospital. And when you were having those conversations and asking those questions, how hard or easy was it for you to ask them and get answers? It was never hard to ask. They were always burning questions. They were always questions that I thought, if there is an answer, I'd be happy with what the answer is, right? If, if the answer is, oh, we already tried it and it didn't work, I would be happy with the, that answer. The harder part was trying to understand why when solutions were so prevalent and we knew kind of answers from different areas, why it was so hard to get them implemented. That was the challenge for me is to understand this world of research in terms of how long does it take, what's involved in it. Those were the harder things to understand because the short answers that were so understandable to researchers like, oh, we need a grant or we don't have funding for that. Didn't make sense to me as an outsider. And I've slowly learned what those things are. But I think those are the big challenges for me to understand what is going on here? I don't get it. This seems so challenging and so difficult, but the answers seem to be already there. I identify with that as somebody outside the world of academia and and seeking of grants, that it seems like a, a bit of a black box that only those people on the inside know anything about. So I'm curious, what do you think the main challenges of involving patients in a meaningful way in health research are? To me, the biggest challenge is that the health research in academia is such a stringent, strict protocol that has been going on for years and years and years. There's a way to do things, and everyone knows that way to do things. As we start to change and think about, well, maybe there's a different way we could do things in respect to being patient and family-oriented, or there's a different way of doing things in terms of you know, capturing that insight from the patient perspective. It's hard to incorporate that with the existing systems and services and procedures. Applying for grants and getting things like that, it is a world that is unknown to those outside of it. So when you try to incorporate these ideas of patient involvement, it's not only the practicalities of it and, you know, how do I do it? How do I get in touch with someone? How do I find a patient? But it's also integrating the processes into a system that's existed in a certain way for a long, long time. We are attempting to engage in an environment that is not familiar to us. But 
the experience of healthcare is very familiar to us. What we're trying to do is engage in that aspect that is that background. How do you support the methods that you use? How do you, you know, write the things that you write that become a story? All that background stuff we're not familiar with, but the front end of healthcare we're very, very familiar with. I think putting that message out there will make people who are engaging in healthcare understand that, you know, we need to listen to the story because it is a precursor for something else. Don't question the story. Take that story and figure out how we can integrate it into that behind the scene. Healthcare has changed over the years. You know, we used to heal people in the hospital and send them home healthy. Now we are experiencing healthcare in the community much, much more than we ever did before. And that community experience of healthcare, I think, is a major gap in medical teaching, in medical publishing. And, you know, I think that's the area that would help to improve the experience of healthcare because it's no longer just a hospital experience. So I see a sort of a parallel actually with uh, with medical publishing. Medical publishing is a bit of a black box except for people on the inside who understand it and and it's difficult to involve people who don't understand the dynamics. And CMAJ is trying to um, increase patient involvement in the journal, in the running of the journal, in co-authoring of articles. And we're really happy that you've authored an article for us. How do you think journals could make patients more involved in medicine or help to make patients more involved in medicine? There is definitely a parallel. Again, you know, medical publishing has been in a way um, for a long, long time. And, is, you know, I'll take, for example, the idea, you know, peer review is a cornerstone of academic publishing that others have taken a look at your work and questioned it in a way to make it better um, and question it to filter out research that, that might not, you know, beat the highest of standards. And when you consider that, when you're bringing in voices from other areas, it might be difficult just even on the onset to, to think about how we integrate those two things, you know? So patients and patient stories are truly just ends of one. Right. So we have a story, we filter our experience through our lives, and then we tell our story. As much as you know, we try and integrate other people that have similar stories, we still are an N of one. But that doesn't work in medical publishing. You know, you look at how many survey respondents there were. You look at, you know, how many others have looked at it where they're you know, three peer reviewers, two peer reviewers, you look for multiple people to look at something and say, yeah, this looks like something that has, you know, an N of a thousand, and that makes sense. So how do you integrate these two views? How do you, you know, expose the values of that patient story within the context of you know, the majority or a large population size or statistical significance. It can be challenging. Um, the other challenge I think in terms of the parallels is that for many patient advisors, patient and family advisors, they work alone. So they might be the only advisor on a study. 
They might be, uh, you know, maybe one other advisor, but they really aren't put into contact with each other. And that comes from the world of medicine where each patient is kind of separated from each other in terms of, you know, we don't want to share anything too confidential. But that also happens in writing. We write as individuals. And when we get the feedback from the peer reviewers, we have to absorb that feedback as individuals. And sometimes that can be very challenging and that can be difficult. And sometimes you need that tough skin to say, I'm going to persevere and I'm going to get my story out there. But you don't always have the confidence that your story matters, that your story is the same story as someone else, or that your story is even the story of, you know, sometimes you're even questioned if that's your story, if you've misinterpreted your story. So that's, I think, the big challenge of, you know, how do we build a community to support each other so that we're not just individuals writing stories individually or advising so now I know that you have feet in both camps now because you're a health researcher yourself and you understand health services research. So you get peer review. May I ask you, Francine, about your experience of peer review for the article that you've written for this issue of CMAJ? How did receiving that feedback feel? It was interesting because it was the two sides of my brain trying to figure out the peer review. So, you know, I get some one review that, you know, was very complimentary, promoting inclusion of the patient voice, but not enough criticism. There must be something that I could do better. Then you get the other side, which was almost critical of the patient voice in the same way that you would be critical of someone doing a scientific research study questioning if the message was shared in, in the right way or questioning why did you not expand on this part of the story and it's a very personal story that I was telling which was very vulnerable for me as well and there were parts of the story that I did hold back because I didn't want to be exposed in that way um, for my own personal protection so to be asked, you know, why didn't you expand on this? Well, there's a reason I didn't want to expand on it. So you get the two sides of it. You know, I want that constructive feedback. I want to grow. I don't want to necessarily be accepted simply because it's a patient story. I think that there were things that could help me write it better. But also I want to be viewed as a patient story with vulnerabilities, you know, with being exposed and considering that in the feedback. So it was interesting. I think I did need tough skin to get through it. Um, I don't know if all advisors would feel um, as positive as I did, but I think it's something that is not an easy solution. It's going to be something that has to be worked through with multiple advisors feeling different emotions with the peer review process and then figuring out how to come out of it. So editors and our patient involvement lead at CMAJ are learning, I think, about the different ways that patient authors experience peer review. So thank you for that. And thank you so much for contributing your N of One story. How is your son doing now? Cristiano is an amazing eight-year-old. He's full of energy. For a child who we were told would never speak a word, will talk your ear off. He loves people. And it's amazing to think about a child who spent so much time in hospital. 
that, you know, he might be fearful of older people or fearful of people in general. And I have to give uh, props to the caregivers at the Hospital for Sick Children. Because of them, he loves people. And um, I smile as I say this, which you can't hear over the um, microphone, but I smile because um, he is everything that they told us he would never be. Francine, thank you so much for joining us on the CMAJ podcast to discuss your article and your experiences and your beautiful son. Well, thank you very much for listening and uh, getting the story of Cristiano, but also the story about patient engagement out there. I think it's really important. Thank you. Francine Buchanan is a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto, a patient and family advisor, a research coordinator at the Hospital for Sick Children, and mom to Cristiano Buchanan. You can read her article on cmaj.ca, or you can find a link to it in the show notes. Next up, Victoria Sagal, Lead of Patient Involvement at CMAJ. Victoria joins me to talk about the steps she's taken over the last year to integrate patient voices at CMAJ at many levels. Victoria, hi, and thank you for joining me. Hi, thanks so much for having me on this one. So Victoria, you've been with the journal for about a year. And I remember we recruited you under the editorship of Dr. Andreas Lepakis, who was keen to advance embedding patient voices at CMAJ and within CMAJ processes. It's been a bit of a, a ride during COVID-19 to join the journal at this time, but you've done a huge amount of work. So tell us what you've been doing to improve patient involvement and engagement at CMAJ Group. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll start off by saying that none of this is something that I've been doing alone. Obviously, as a team, we've all been working quite closely, members of CMAJ staff, as well as patient partners that have been on board with the journal. In terms of specific ways that we've involved patients in CMAJ, I kind of think of it as direct and indirect involvement. So in terms of direct involvement of patient partners in the journal, um, we have patient partners sitting on a number of different boards. So before I joined, Andreas Lepakis had brought on board Jean Miller and Vincent Dumais, who are members of the editorial advisory board that provide input to the editors and editor-in-chief about directions that the journal should take. We also have two patient partners sitting on the practice advisory board, which provide feedback about what topics should be focused on in the practice section of the journal and what form would be best to explore those issues. We've also over the past year formed what we're calling a patient core group, which is basically a small group consisting of four patient partners and two others that have expertise in patient partnership from a policy healthcare researcher sort of angle. So a couple concrete examples of things that we've been working on in that group have been developing compensation policies to uh, pay patient partners who are on our teams, as well as authors that we commission to write pieces for CMAJ, providing a patient or family perspective. We've also worked as part of that group to develop an evaluation plan so that we can take a look at all of the initiatives that CMAJ is doing around patient engagement going forward and see how well we are involving people's voices and whose voices we're involving in those initiatives. Um, and finally, as part of the group, we've been putting a lot of focus on developing supports for patient authors and other authors that might be new to the academic publishing process to make it more accessible to people. Um, on top of that, over the past few months, we've started involving patients in our peer review processes, starting off with the 360 cases, which I'm excited that we're launching as part of this special issue. 
We've also been working to help support patient authors or patient co-authors to be involved in the journal, um, involving patients as interviewees on podcasts. And also Seema Marwaha is leading a series called The Patient Portraits in which she uh, interviews and does a profile of one patient. So those are a couple direct ways that patients are involved. And then in terms of ways that we've been trying to indirectly involve patient priorities in everything we do, a big focus that we've been taking a look at is how we can encourage patient authorship and make it easier for those working with patients on their teams to recognize their accomplishments and work when submitting to the journal. So one of the things we've been taking a look at quite closely is looking at our submission processes and also in our instructions to authors to make those clearer and more intuitive for people new to the process. We've also changed our online submission platform by adding a couple questions for non-patient authors if they're the corresponding authors so they can indicate if there is a patient author on the team or if patients were involved so that we can uh, take a look at those submissions and understand if additional support may be needed on those teams. And we're also now asking that any research submissions that come in that have patient involvement also complete what's known as the GRIP2 questionnaire, which is basically reporting guidelines for patient involvement in research. As I've already mentioned before, another couple indirect ways that we're looking to involve patients in CMAJ over the past year have been developing policies like I've already alluded to for patient authorship and compensation. Um, and we've also been exploring ways that uh, patient partners on our team as well as patients outside the journal can help identify priorities for topics that should be covered in our content going forward, as well as ways to explore adding patient perspectives to more clinically focused content that the journal is already publishing, for example, by developing linked or clustered pieces around similar topics with a, a slightly different angle. So those are a big list of ways that we've been working to involve patient perspectives over the past year. And I think what's really key to know for everyone listening right now is that our plan is to continue evolving this process with time and that these are just the first initial steps. We want to make sure that we do it right. And to do it right, we have to go slowly and carefully and, and really take a look at what we're doing and how we can make it better. So you have done a lot of work, a lot of level setting baseline groundwork for growing patient involvements in the future. And that's great. And we can talk a little bit later about how um, you are going to evaluate it and grow it in the future. I was just wanting to come back to what do you mean? What do we mean at CMAJ when we talk about patients? Mm, yeah, great question. So at CMAJ, we've chosen to use the CIHR SPORE, which is the Canadian Institute for Healthcare Research's strategy for patient-oriented research. They have a very well-established program for patient engagement in Canada, and they specifically define patients as people that have lived experience with a health condition, as well as their families, caregivers, and informal caregivers, such as friends. Let's talk about why CMAJ is doing this. Why is it so important for us to involve patients in the generation of health knowledge and uh, health policy? Yeah, I'll provide a brief answer here, but I would also recommend anyone who would like more information about this to check out of our statement of purpose for patient engagement, which is now available on the website. Um, but very briefly, CMAJ's mission for a long time has been to publish knowledge that matters about healthcare. And by involving patients in what we're doing now, that's answering the question of knowledge that matters to who. And what we think is that by involving patients in the journal, that encompasses 
the knowledge that matters to all Canadians that's inclusive of academics, clinicians, and people with a lived experience and Canadians who pay indirectly for the healthcare system and have a stake in it working well and in, in being able to achieve optimal health. So a couple of key reasons specifically for the journal that patient engagement is important is one to respect value and integrate the expertise of patients who've gained this expertise through living with their condition day in and day out. Um, and so may have different perspectives on outcomes that are important or ways to improve the system that may not be seen or may not be recognized as being quite as important by those working within the system who maybe only have time to speak with patients for a very short amount of time during clinical visits, for example. A second reason it's really important is to ensure justice, fairness, and equity within our journal and in Canada in general. Patient voices are often left out of discussions about the healthcare, or if they are included, they may not have the power to enact these changes. So by working to make sure that CMAJ not only um, includes patient voices and perspectives in what we publish, but encourages it and encourages partnership among academics and researchers. It gives attention and more power to these voices. Third of all, at CMAJ specifically, it'll help us produce more relevant and helpful content for our readers, because having people who, who've lived experience of disease engaged in the journal helps us understand what their priorities and perspectives are, and therefore increases the likelihood that the content that we publish at CMAJ is meaningful and has benefits for the people they're ultimately intended to help. Um, we also think that it will be a huge benefit for our readers who we know are mostly academics, clinicians, and people interested in healthcare policy at this point, because it provides a different lens to think about their work and different angles to explore that could potentially make it more helpful for the people that, that they interact with every day, their patients, um, research participants, or partners. And then finally, we think that involving patients in the journal will help improve clinical practice overall because hearing from patients about their conditions and how the care they receive from the healthcare system affects their life um, will also help practitioners understand aspects that work really well for people and potentially those that don't and can potentially change practice in the future to be able to better help those patients and people who come to them. So I'd like to hone in on what you said on your first reason why we are in it's important to involve patients where you said that patients are expert in living with their conditions and I think you know talking as a as a doctor who has practiced I think that the way we are taught doesn't necessarily encourage us to understand that knowledge lives in different places. It doesn't only live in the things that we were taught at medical school, and it doesn't only live in our clinical experience, but that patients themselves have this lived experience of a condition. And it's about centering that knowledge and providing a platform for that knowledge, I think. So I'd like to move on then to talk about a new kind of article that we have just now started to publish that we've been planning for a long time and it's called 360 cases and the reason that we called it 360 cases after thinking about lots and lots of different names is that we wanted to create in this article category the the perception of looking at the healthcare experiences of all different players in a single encounter so the these 360 cases are bringing authorship in a new way to the journal because we are always going to have a patient or caregiver as an author on the 360 cases. And then that will be alongside um, 
a reflection from a physician or a social worker or a psychologist or somebody else in the interaction. Would you like to tell us a little bit about the process of developing these 360 cases? Yeah, absolutely. So one of, I think, the goals that we had in starting to think about creating this new article format is finding a place to talk about some of the interpersonal and systemic aspects of medicine that aren't covered as often in other practice articles in the journal, which is where this one um, will ultimately land. And really our hope with it is that it will open conversations about problems uh, or barriers to receiving care or providing care um, that may not be talked about quite as openly, but have a real impact on, on everyone providing care and receiving care that deserves more attention. So a really good example of this that I remember coming up in some of our early discussions about creating the 360 cases is that when receiving medical education, you might be taught how to treat stroke, but not necessarily how to treat stroke in a 52 year old who's a single parent with two young children and lives an hour away. Um, and I think it's getting to the fact that there are many different actors at play and that you know, illness happens to people that are embedded in you know, their full lives, everything that they wanna do, that publishing these 360 cases and highlighting the perspectives of many people involved in the encounter recognizes that everyone faces constraints and pressures, whether they're at work and trying to deliver um, the best care that they can or receiving care. Yes, we have just published our first 360 case, but more are in the pipeline, so watch this space. Victoria, are you looking for more patient involvement than we currently have? And um, how are you going to work out how well we're doing in involving patients? Yeah, absolutely. So if anyone listening to this right now is a patient themselves or working as uh, part of a patient partner team and are interested in being involved, please contact me. So immediately there's three things um, that we're looking for more partners to come on board with us. The first would be uh, getting more involved in our patient peer review process. And so if anyone wants more information about that, please contact me. You can provide more information about what would be involved and see if it's something you're interested in. Um, also just in general, we're looking for more off, uh, articles that are written by patients or co-authored with patient partner teams. So if that's something that you think you'd be interested in, I know it can be a little confusing to know where to start and what CMAJ's requirements are for articles. So I'm happy to speak with anyone to get a sense of what they might be interested in writing and what CMAJ would need to explain that process a little bit more. And then finally, one of the things that we'll really be looking forward next year, and in particular looking to recruit patient partners for in the fall, is we're gonna be creating what we're calling a patient perspective board, which will be more of a longstanding board of the journal, which will be include people with academic research and uh, personal lived experience backgrounds working together to continue developing kind of the structural components of what we're doing at CMAJ, but in particular looking at uh, topics and things that the journal should prioritize in terms of evaluating content and um, particular themes and developing related articles that I've talked about before. So if anyone would be interested in either learning more about our program going forward or would like to be uh, kept in the loop about calls for recruitment happening for that in the fall, again, please send me an email. In terms of your second question was about evaluating our patient engagement program with time. Um, we're actually going to be looking at a number of different dimensions. So the first, we'll be looking at what CMAJ is actually publishing that involves patient perspectives. So taking a look at who are patient authors, how many are patient authored teams, um, et cetera. Um, the second will be 
understanding the perspectives of patient partners on our team about how they think the program is running and also information about who they are um, across all of these different activities because we want to make sure that the voices that we're embedding within our teams and, and joining us on our teams are also reflective of many different experiences of different Canadians across um, the country in different provinces, different disease areas. So that's something that we'll be looking at throughout the uh, coming years in the journal. And then another component that will be rolled up at some point TBD um, will be understanding what our readers think about the new patient engagement initiatives and if there are any areas that they would like to hear from patients as well. Um, so those are a few different ways, but we're hoping to evaluate all of these areas on an annual basis um, to see how that changes with time. And ultimately we hope that the amount of patient voices and the perspectives being given um, increase and are increasingly diverse as well with time. Well, thanks, Victoria. It's a huge undertaking, and I feel so proud that the journal is doing this. So as you've said, folks who are interested in participating or learning more about it can be in touch with you. Thanks for talking to me today. It's been a great chat. Thank you. Victoria Sagal is lead of patient involvement at CMAJ. CMAJ's first 360 case explores the end of life of a woman who passed away suddenly after an unexpected serious diagnosis. It also looks at the experiences of her family and healthcare providers. The article is co-written by the woman's husband, her social worker, one of her nurses, and the ICU physician who treated her at the end of her life. We encourage you to read it in this week's patient engagement theme issue. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Interim Editor-in-Chief for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Surgery is both an art and a science. We dissect out both on Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. I'm Chad Ball, the co-editor-in-chief of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. And I'm Amir Farouk, associate digital editor for the Canadian Journal of Surgery. Each episode, we are joined by amazing guests, ranging from iconic surgeons from around the world, as well as leaders in other fields such as coaching, accounting, law, and more, as we try to understand how to become better surgeons, physicians, and human beings. Listen to Cold Steel wherever you get your podcasts.